0: Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hello, Whip Smarties. I had so much fun talking with today's guest. Megan Rinks. Megan is an actress, a blogger, a YouTube star, and now an author. She has a new book out called You're Not Special, and I cannot wait for my copy to arrive in the mail. In the book, she gives some great advice. She shares her story in hopes of reminding people that they are not alone on the bumpy road to adulthood, and there are more than a few laughs packed in. In this conversation, we are going to talk about everything from our mutual love of Brooke Davis and all things One Tree Hill to how Megan got started on YouTube, how she's staying sane in quarantine, and oh, so much more. Enjoy. Megan, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. I... I feel such a kinship to you when I when I was reading um, about your book coming out, and I, I read this phrase: "Now that she's mostly through her awkward stage,
1: <laughs> Megan's mostly. here to
0: say it gets better." And I was like, "Oh my god, same!" I don't know if I'm ever
1: going to be all the way through it, yeah, but I'm embracing it now I'm just like now I'm owning it instead of like being afraid of being awkward now I'm like you know what you're quirky like it works for some people as opposed to trying to pretend that I'm not I'm like it's fine you can be awkward like it's okay now it's just like a defining part of my personality as opposed to something I'm like oh well, I'll grow out of it it was like oh turns out you don't grow out of it yeah <laughs> yeah it turns out I don't
0: think I'm ever going to and I've realized that when my friends find something I'm doing to be hilarious, it's usually because it's an expression of my awkwardness. So maybe I should lean into it and use it as comedic gold.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I I have to tell you that, um, and this is like such a nerd thing. And I asked my publicist beforehand and I was like, can I say this to her? And she was like, Oh, for sure. I was so obsessed with One Tree Hill, like so obsessed. (laughs) And like Brooke Davis was my icon and my queen as like every young feminist. But you had a blue convertible bug in the show. And so the first car I had in LA was a blue convertible bug and I named it Brooke Davis. Oh my God, I'm obsessed. I was like oh my god can I tell her this like is this so embarrassing like no I I love that I just like I I just had to tell you because like I loved I loved that show but like I loved you on like every like it was like literally the absolute best and I worked with Joe DiVola a ton when I first moved to LA, and like oh my one of the God. and he, literally, I was telling my boyfriend this. I was like, "I'm going to tell her that." He was like, "Wow, I haven't heard that name in so long." But he was, I he gave me a copy of I forget what season of it, but he knew I was watching it, and he was like, "You remind me so much of Sophia." And I was like, "Joe, do you understand what kind of compliment that is? Like, do you know how much like major that was for me?" So I just have to say that like I have been a fan forever, and like I love when character people who play characters that like I love on TV end up being like really great people and like are also like activists and like feminists and that stuff so you like I I feel like I'm like okay I'm so glad like that's who I chose to like relate to and really like so I just want to say thank you because it was so especially like at that time I think of a lot of TV shows and stuff there was not a lot of great like female characters and like Even in, like, every show, there's, like, questionable things that, like, you know, as an actor that you're, like, I hate this. Like, and even though this is a character and it's not always me, like, I hate the fact that, like this is either supposed to be like a part of the joke or it's supposed to be funny. And like, you're just, like, it's not, it's like uncomfy and gross. And so it was just nice through like all of that to like have a character that I felt like I could count on that I like, really liked that. I was like, okay, this can keep me sane through all of it. So I just, yeah, I just had to tell you that I'm a little bit of a fangirl. <laughs> I love
0: that. Honestly, I love that so much. I, I feel that it's funny. I was at this like big sort of meetup. Um, we did this big charity like convention thing, a bunch of us together in Wilmington like a year ago. And these sweet girls were shocking. And and one of them was like, I'm Brooke Davis's number one fan. And I was like, gotta be honest, babe, I am. Like you (laughs) all can fight for like spot number two. But I I loved her. I loved playing her, even when it was to your point, like complicated when I would read something and go, I would never do that Mm -hmm. to figure out why she would and why she did and 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 to really fight for Her right to grow, you know. Mm -hmm. I I fought with my writers a lot, yeah, and and I like I felt like I was defending a friend, you know. She was really so meaningful to me as well. So I don't know. I really I just love it.
1: No, it's it's such a it's such a good character, and there's so few of those that I had that were like shows that I watched at like an age where you fall in love with TV and characters like in a different way when you're a teenager because like you feel so seen and I'm an only child. So I didn't have like, oh yeah. So I didn't have like a sibling to relate to. So like when I would like either read books or like watch movies like that or TV shows, like I would get so engulfed Mm -hmm. in that. And so it was so nice to have something that like at that age that is like, I don't even want to say necessarily like a role model, but like a peer because like obviously like no character is perfect and like, I've been on that side, too, where you're, like, fighting for something. You're like, she would never do this. Like, nobody in their right mind would ever do this. Like, I can't do this. This is driving me crazy. I am not
0: going to do this. Yeah, like, there's yeah. no way in
1: hell. I once had to fight, so, like, tooth and nail so hard to, like, a room of male writers about why I couldn't do, like, a sexy strip striptease taking leggings off. And I was like, taking leggings off is the least sexy thing in the world. They're going to get stuck on my feet. Are you going to cut? Or am I going to, like, rip them off my feet? Like, this is not, it's not cute. It's like you're asking. Me to like squeeze into like a, the tightest piece of clothing ever, and like make it sexy. And I'm like, it's not going to be sexy. I'm going to be jumping and hopping. And like, are you kidding me? This is insane. And so I, yeah, I, I think it's it's just it was just so nice to have, you know, one that you could like count, like yeah, count on that felt a lot better than, you know, some of the ones that just when shows that like also like jump the ship where you're like, Oh God, Oh no, this is, this is too bad. I could, I could always count on Brooke Davis and then had it further along in my car too, which I was so sad when I got rid of that car. And I was like, Oh my God, my Brooke Davis car is gone. (laughs) Oh, that's so
0: fun. Honestly, I wonder, I'm like, I wonder how many Volkswagens like people decided they wanted because Mm -hmm. of that sweet vibe.
1: It was, it was like such a good vibe. Like I lived for it and I knew I wanted one. And then I saw the blue color and I was like, oh, I have, like I have to, this is me like fully achieving Brooke Davis status, which is all I've ever wanted.
0: <laughs> well, we're both awkward only children. So I see why Joe Davola thinks that we're similar. And I admit <laughs> that.
1: Makes total sense. He was like, both yeah. of you are just like loud feminists too. And I was like, oh yeah, for sure. Relate, relate. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> I'm like, do you think I'm loud? I, this isn't normal. This isn't a normal voice I'm speaking in. No,
1: this is what we're supposed to do.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. Story of my life. Oh, my gosh. It's actually been so cool. I've been getting a lot of notes on socials about from fans who are starting the show over again because what else are we doing in quarantine? And I, I actually, because Dead to Me, I don't know. Have you seen that show on Netflix? I, it's
1: on my list. We haven't started it yet.
0: Okay. Honestly, perfect because it was one of my favorite things to happen in television last year and season two just came out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I obviously have to rewatch season one so that I'm essentially in a full binge like up until the moment where season two comes out. And I get it. I, you realize that when when you really love a character or you love a show, like you can watch it over and over again mm-hmm. and, and it just feels good. And so it's been sweet as I've been rewatching one of my favorite shows to to hear from people who are like, I'm totally rewatching Brooke's journey. And I'm like, Oh,
1: it's really cute. I I love that. I should rewatch it. I have so much to watch. I'm so bad at like, no, start with new things. The
0: thing is like, if we had three seasons, it would be one thing, but we had nine. It's too much. It's 187 (laughs) hours of television. Like, yeah, I I can't, if you have things you need to watch, you don't want to do that first, you know?
1: it's what i watched when i was dropping out of college when i and i had no friends was one trio. <laughs> like that was like i was like yeah look at this big group of friends can't relate i am in their group of friends now you're like those are obviously
0: <laughs> one step away from being my friends exactly so what what are you doing i mean you know we were talking before we started recording about what it's like for both of us to be working from home and figuring out how to make you know the content that we make but what's keeping you busy during quarantine? How are you staying sane?
1: Well, ADHD is keeping me busy because I constantly start a bunch of new things and then don't necessarily finish. But I did discover that I have a love of puzzles like through all of this, which I think everybody's discovering. But I have never done a puzzle in my life. And I have, I like had this epiphany, which turns out not to be an epiphany because I Googled it and it's like a whole thing like, and kind a of whole study that people with ADHD are great at puzzles. Like I thought I unlocked my superpower. And I was like, Oh my God, I've never been like this innately good at something that has to use my brain because my brain works mm. so much faster than my, like, than my mouth and my mouth works fast already. So that has been so fun for me. And I ordered a bunch and now my friends and I are like shipping the puzzles we finished to each other. So like we can all start them all over again. Oh my God. But I love that's- that. It's so fun. I absolutely love that. I also, weirdly enough, so I talk about it in like my book a lot, how like I started on YouTube when I was 16 and I vlogged for a really long time and was like doing like, whether it was like daily vlogs, weekly vlogs. And in my book, I kind of go through the point where I realized that I was like, these aren't like great for my mental health at all. Like there was definitely like, They served me well for a certain point when, like, I didn't have friends and all that stuff. But I was like, I was just putting on a show. Like, I wasn't actually, like, dealing with my stuff. I was like, let me ignore my stuff and, like, make content for other people. But weirdly enough, as my book came out, I was like, I kind of want to vlog again. Like, which I was like, this is so weird. I never thought I would get to that point again. And I was like, well, that's like a thanks to therapy sort of thing. But I've, like, been finding myself, weirdly enough, yeah, going back to things that, for like that, my therapist term is like, oh, it no longer serves you when you finish with something and like, okay, this thing no longer serves its purpose for you. And I was like, now I feel like I'm going back to like those things that didn't necessarily serve a purpose for a little while. And now I'm like, oh, they're serving like a different purpose for me, which is like fun and different because I think it also, it's, it's hard. That productivity thing in quarantine is so hard because it feels like everybody is everybody is like redoing their patio and like all of these things that it feels like, and they're doing it like beautifully, like aesthetically, like they've got like full glam makeup on and like, oh, we're doing it all ourselves. And it feels very much, I'm like, I like will blink and it's four o'clock. Like, what do you mean that you're getting this done? It's always four o'clock. Every time I look at the clock, it's four o'clock. And I was like, oh shit, what did I do all day? No, I have the exact same experience. And I've been trying to get up earlier.
0: So like all of this week, I've been getting up at seven and my plan every day is like, get up at seven, make a coffee, feed the dog, wor- exercise, like get your endorphins going. I'm doing none of this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like none of it. I, I get up at seven and then I blink and it's eight. And I'm like, but wait, where did that hour go? And I, and I have to be on a call at 830. And I, I'm just so conf- I'm confused at where the time is going. Quarantine for me feels like a very weird, just time warp. And some things are working. Uh, but so many things just aren't and i i had that insane sort of aspirational thing that you know maybe is also a, a sign of like a little bit of a hyperactivity thing slash like the over the only child overachiever syndrome mm-hmm. where i was like obviously this is when i'm going to learn to play the piano i'm going to get my french back i'm going to i haven't touched the piano not once i haven't opened a language app not once i i don't know what i'm doing But I feel busy and exhausted, and maybe part of that just comes from, you know, an empathetic experience of global stress, but this is, this is crazy.
1: It's, it's so, it's so wild. It feels like, for me, it feels like the days are so short yet so long and we've been here for so long but it's only been a week like it feels like it's like this t- it's like this time warp like I'm stuck it's like in bendy. the middle of it yeah I'm like what is happening like I the only thing that I know for sure that I do every day is scroll through TikTok that is the only thing that I am like confident <laughs> yeah. that I'm like did that today and it's never on my to-do list it's never my intention or my goal like yes waste an hour and a half on TikTok but it's the only thing I consistently do it's the only thing I was like okay oh God, for sure that. So, wait, I'm so
0: interested thinking about the world to your point of TikTok social media, you know, YouTube. You said that you made your first videos at 16, but but where do you think that came from? Like, you know, we 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 have in common that we're both only children and I know that you grew up in a really small town, like less than 8,000 people, right? Where where was that and and how does an only child in a small town begin kind of finding her voice like what what was childhood for you
1: um my i was like a very dramatic child um and my, my i they I, my parents used to say that they caught me cr- practicing crying in front of the mirror when i was like 2 and they were like oh god she either needs to be an actor or she has some other issues that she's dealing with and so i always i grew up like acting and doing plays but i think the thing that was so weird for me that I didn't understand until I got older and I understood what anxiety was where I was like I'm a Leo I'm so outgoing like I love to be the center of attention but I'm also petrified all the time like mm-hmm. of that and so Why I got same it, like oh literally my entire life of being like I'm a big performer and I want everyone to look at me but also please don't look at me because I'm terrified and I like want to hide in a corner so I always like grappled with this am I an introvert? No, I'm not because I don't recharge alone. I recharge with people, but it's only like a select group of people in my like, ideal scenario. That's like not stressful. It's not Coachella. Like I don't leave Coachella being like, I am energized. I'm like, that's like my like anxiety cesspool. pool. Like I hate that. That is not fun. So I, yeah, I grew up like doing like, just like very much like performer. I loved like putting on shows and doing all of that kind of stuff. And I actually started my YouTube channel because the summer before, my senior year of high school, my very small town, I grew up in a town called Fairfax in Marin County in Northern California. And Marin is like, Oh, like high achiever central like my oh, entire yeah. high school was like either they like took a gap year and like went to India to find themselves or they went to Stanford like there was literally <laughs> no in between and I was like so like what if I'm like neither of those like I don't want to travel right now because like that sounds stressful and like expensive but like I also am not smart enough to go to Stanford so all of my friends did like pre-college programs to like in like uh, like Northwestern did journalism did all of that stuff mm. and I had so, I couldn't do anything, and I also didn't have great grades. So, it's not like I could get into, into any of those things. So, I ended up making a YouTube channel for like the summer. And it was odd because I never grew up doing sports. I danced, but like I was allowed to quit anything. Like I never had like the, no, you have to stay and do this. It was like, if like quit then if you want. And I was like, well now I'm like 15 and all of my friends have done like extracurriculars and all of this stuff. And I've done everything once I did like Ukrainian Easter egg blowing classes. Like I have done like all of this like random stuff, but I never, I didn't have any, at least in my opinion, I didn't have any like knack or like, I didn't have my thing. Like I didn't have that. And that's, such a weird, important thing in high school, like you're an athlete, you run track or you you're this kind of person. And even though I did theater, I wasn't like one of the theater kids, even though I did all the plays, I just didn't fit in with them. So YouTube was weirdly enough, it became kind of like that was my thing. And I started at such a good point in YouTube. It was before anyone was getting paid. So like there was none of that, oh, you're going to make all this money off of it. And it was so not saturated and I also, weirdly enough, 16 was a late age to start making YouTube videos. Really? So like people were like 12 and 11, like making videos. And there you're relating to other like young, young people watching. And then the only other people who are really making videos in the space was people who were like in their 20s. So they kind of like knew better to be like professional and all of that stuff. So you're either I'm acting like a kid or I'm being really professional. And I was at this sweet spot of 16 where I'm like, oh, I swear, like I make dirty jokes. Like, like I'm just unapologetically myself. And so it ended up like, I, I think doing pretty well because I was, I was like a different kind of person on YouTube at the time. Cause I wasn't really thinking about it as, oh, I'm a business professional, but then I also was, I wasn't a kid. So I think that there was that kind of divide that ended up being a good thing, but I had no idea it was, I was like, oh, I'm just going to do it for a summer. Like, I'm not going to keep doing this. And then I just did. Okay, so I'm so curious because then what if if everyone on
0: YouTube was 12 or a group of adults doing like whatever professional demonstrations they were doing? um, I and I'm just thinking, I'm like, my God, the last YouTube video I watched was like how to train your dog to run on a treadmill. Literally, this is the thing I'm trying to figure out because my Maybe poor dog is goal. Well, my poor dog is like losing her mind. She's cooped up. Like all the hikes are closed, and she doesn't know what to do with herself. But if, if there was no one else kind of in your peer group doing this, how did you even know what to do? And and how did you find, I guess, like, when did you discover YouTube? And when did you then, by watching whatever you were watching, think, oh, I could do this. I have something to do here.
1: Yeah. So I had a friend who I grew up with who she did beauty videos on YouTube for like a short period of time when we were in middle school. And she used, like, a fake name and, like, lied about a bunch of stuff. So, like, it became, like, drama at our school. But at the same time, like, it was the era where you would never put your last name on the internet because it was like, oh, no, like, people are coming to find you. Like, it is dangerous. So I learned about it through, exactly. And, like, I learned about it through her. So I thought YouTube was just for beauty videos. So I didn't know there was anything else. And I didn't wear makeup. Like, I didn't know how to do it. So, but I just pretended. And I kind of was like, I guess this is what you do. So, like, my first earliest videos are me clearly like bullshitting my way through and like not really faking it that I don't know what I'm doing. But it was like, I guess I'll just like keep trying to do this. But I think like through all of it, I did end up finding people who were like around my age. It was, and they were, a lot of them did start a little bit younger than I did. And I think that's where you get the, like more of like the squeaky clean little thing, because like you're 14, your parents are gonna yell at you if you swear. And like my parents were not like that. Like I I we, I was like I was just doing whatever I really wanted to do. So I think that's kind of where, but I it's so funny. I've always I've always had really bad imposter syndrome. And I think I've always had it on YouTube, but because I wasn't really consuming YouTube videos, I wasn't comparing myself to anyone. I was kind of just listening to my friends, like, oh, this is the kind of stuff. That people do this. Is what you do, and I was like, okay. And I just started doing it, and wasn't realizing that if I actually like actively compared the videos I was doing to what other people were doing, mine were awful. They were like not good. Like I clearly had no idea like what I was saying, but I just I was just so blissfully unaware of all of that stuff. And I've I've really gone out of my way to like kind of always be like that. Like I don't like to consume content of people who are doing. I don't like to consume content of people who are like, we're kind of in the same lane because like I wouldn't say that I'm like an inherently jealous person because it's not. I was recently like I tweeted about this being like, am I jealous if I like not I, I don't want I want everyone to have what they have. I just want what they have. And they were like, no, no, that's not jealousy. You're just envious. And I'm like naturally can kind of be like that. So I really try not to like consume stuff of people who are doing kind of like in the similar, like the, like the same, same vein of what I'm doing. Cause I can just compare so much. And then I like get the debilitating perfectionism where I'm like, well, if I'm not doing it, if I'm not filming videos with drones and doing it like this, and if it doesn't cost $10,000 and like, why am I doing it? And I was like, well, Megan, not everything has to be like that. Well, I also, I mean, I love that you're
0: willing to talk about that and willing to open a conversation about that because especially I think as women, We have decades of a consumer driven industry that has literally been designed and orchestrated to make us feel less than so that we'll buy more. And women have been taught, you know, unlike men who are allowed to just punch each other on the playground growing up, girls are always supposed to be nice. They're always supposed to be sweet. They're always supposed to kind of stuff their feelings down. So we don't, not that we're supposed to be hitting each other. That's not what I'm saying, but we don't have these patterns of self-expression for quote unquote ugly emotions, which envy would theoretically fall into. So we don't know how to say, oh my God, like, look at this amazing girl. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's funny. She made this video that is so incredible. Like, I don't know if I could do something like that. We don't know that that's normal. So, so because when those emotions come up, we've been cultured to think they're bad, then we sort of, we project that badness onto other people in a weird way.
1: Yeah, no, I think there's that difference of like, you don't have to hate people who are doing things and have things that you wish you had, but you also don't have to like, consume all of the things that they're doing if they don't make you feel great. And that was such like a, I like had that, I had a conversation with my therapist about that. I was like, am I a bad feminist? Because like, there are some people that I'm like friends with, but I'm like, they make me feel bad about myself, but it's nothing that they're doing. And like, I feel so bad that I'm not supporting them. She's like, well, how are you not supporting them? I was like, oh, I've just like muted them on Instagram. And she was like, that's not, not supporting them. Like, that's not like, if you're not actively tearing someone down, talking bad about someone and like all of that, like you're allowed to like protect, your own like mental health and still like love and support these people who might not necessarily for where you're currently at in your life, bring you to make you feel like the best version of yourself. And that has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with you. And I was like, yeah, okay. So I'm not a bad feminist. Okay. Like I was like, that, I was terrified of that.
0: Well, and I think if you can own it and I think if you can understand how your experience of what you take in relates to your self-care and your mental health, again, it shifts the perspective. It's less actually that you're envious of what someone else has and more that your personal self-doubt or whatever it is you're processing in the moment is triggered by the observation of what appears to be someone else's perfection. And one of the things that I that I love so much. I was having this conversation years ago um, with my friend, Glennon Doyle. She's an amazing author and she's kind of like this incredible mentor to me. And I was saying, you know, we were having a conversation. It was like a fireside chat at this big speaking event thing. It was so cool. Honestly, I'm like, as we're having this conversation, I'm like, you have to come. You would love
1: this. I love fireside chats.
0: (laughs) But so we were talking and I said, you know, one of the things that I think is so difficult is that Because we do live in this digital world and we are connected and so many of us do, I think for good reason, have presence on social media, it gets really easy to compare someone's two dimensional life on screen to your three dimensional experience, which is so much more complicated and things look perfect that aren't because there are people who think your life looks perfect and and then you're sitting in your three dimensional body going like, I'm the only one failing. And that's universally true for everyone. And she said something that I was like, (gasps) and she said, never compare someone else's outsides to your insides. Mm. Yeah. And so if you have to mute someone else's outsides to protect your insides, I think that's an amazing show of like willpower, self-preservation and self-care.
1: One of the biggest things that like was the aha click moment for me is when I realized that I compare my own highlight reel to my own life, like I will compare and like and that was when I was like, "Oh wow, this is a me thing. This is not anybody else being involved like this is all on me where like I would look back at old pictures or I would look back at old videos and all of that stuff that I had this like deep like three hour talk with one of my friends who's also been on YouTube for a while, and I was like were we happier back then or were we just good at faking it? And like, was this like, was this like the best version of ourselves? And like, did we, or did we feel the exact same way that we feel now? Like, are we comparing ourselves to ourselves? And like, and we, we even had a hard time getting caught up in the sense of it's hard enough when you look at other people and like you rationalize, like, is this their real life or are they putting on a front? And then I was like, wait, I'm having a hard time looking at things that I've posted or talked about like two, three, four years ago and going, was I being real? Was I putting on a front? Like I'm comparing me now to prior me forever. Like it's a cycle that continues to go on. And I think it happens even whether or not anyone's online or whatever, but I found it so much especially with like body positivity or like body neutrality, where you look back at a picture of yourself and you're like, oh, I hated how I looked that night. And then you look and you're like, why look so good? Like, why can't I look like that now? And it's like, oh, but I've never in that current moment where you're in like, however you're looking and however you're feeling you're like, at least I've always found I'm always thinking about something before. And then I have to put myself back in that before. And I go in that moment, I wasn't going, this is it. This is what I feel the best. I was thinking of me before again. Like, it's just this endless cycle that I found like, okay, well now I just, I just don't, I don't slip down that rabbit hole because it's not helpful for me at all to like put, and that's also like the I've had a, I love following like body positive people and like body, body neutrality was like the biggest like mind, like mind blowing thing to me ever. I was like, oh, because I was like, self love is so unattainable for some things for me. I'm like, I have like flat feet and I hate them and they're huge and like I'm not gonna love them. Like, no offense to like massive feet, like they kind of suck. Like, I look like I come into a room feet first, but I (laughs) I was like, but why do I, if I can't, if I can't love them, which is fine, then I just don't have to care and put all of this value on something that is like so unimportant. But I think the issue, at least I found that the issue with so my issue with self-love for certain things is it, it makes it feel important because the things you love are things that are important to you. And I was like, well, I can't let some of this stuff be important to me because like if I if I have to love it, then it means it's important and I'm not going to be able to love it. So therefore, it can't be important at all. Right.
0: Well, and and why does everything have to be important? Mm hmm.
1: It's too much. I can't have that many pillars. I need to have like small things or a couple things that are important to me. And then everything, it goes like a scale from there, but I can't have everything be all of that at once.
0: Everything doesn't have to be amazing. There can be a whole handful of things that are just fine.
1: Exactly. And then that's also fine. (laughs) Like it's fine. Like it doesn't have to be this like fantastic, happy, perfect all the time. When you think about, because
0: I think that's such an interesting thing, you know, you observing that you can compare yourself to prior versions of yourself. How how does it feel now to have all this record of of your life online in the way that you do? Cuz you talk about c- coming into this space in such a unique time, like before YouTube had been monetized, before people were even maybe using their names, like that you would never put your last name. Like d- did your family think it was crazy that you were putting videos of yourself on YouTube? Like what what in, in the sort of looking back at the scope do you think, na- think now and like maybe even remember about how it started and how different it was?
1: Yeah, I mean, i I was lucky that like my friends were all very supportive of me on YouTube because again, it was like my thing. They all had a thing and I kind of was, I wasn't like a floater, but I just didn't have that concrete thing. So I think my friends were really happy for me with it. I like dive deep into like the parent relationship stuff in my book that it was I that was a huge reason why I threw myself like into YouTube a lot was like not having a super happy home life and having like YouTube was you again like you get to create your own highlight reel. And so I was so I would do that like I would make my videos and like make certain things not even necessarily appear to be better for other people, but like for me, that I was like, oh, this is like, it's like a scrapbook. You don't put like shit memories in a scrapbook. You put all of the good stuff. And so like, there's like a year where something really bad happens. You're not probably gonna include it. So, cause you wanna look back on it with like, oh wow, this was so happy. These memories is the stuff that I actually want to remember. So I really focused on like making my YouTube like that. And I think like, I think because I, my, parents were like supportive in a certain like to a certain extent like my dad's always been like my number one biggest cheerleader but he's also like a Capricorn workaholic I mean is he no my mom's a Capricorn he's a sat is he a sat I forget which one he is but he's (laughs) he's like a workaholic like all of that kind of stuff and so I think I he was like supportive of it and my mom was not but in a sense that I think that made me work harder at it and like it to it's something to prove like when your parents don't necessarily think like when it's like oh that's so dumb like that's so stupid nothing's gonna come from it it becomes like a oh I'll show you sort of thing so it's weird because I think the whole like m- my like big like leaps in YouTube because I really threw myself into it when I had a really bad time at college and a bar- part of it was people that like either didn't like that I was on YouTube or, like, thought that I, because I was, like, making money at that time that I should, like, be giving them stuff and, like, I should give, that, like, that I should have brought more to their lives, like, because of what I was doing, a lot of that, like, success and, like, when I was really grinding at it, so much of it was... I don't want to say like vengeful or like, I'll show you kind of a thing, but it kind of was. So, so many of my memories of like, I was so unhappy, but like, I had some, like something to really, really prove that like, you just, I just like grind. I hate like being like, oh, rise and grind. But like, I did, like, I really threw myself into something as, a combo of a distraction, but then also as like proving it to myself and other people that like, I could do this thing and this thing wasn't stupid, but I I think I was always lucky because um, I had, like, my friends were always so supportive. Like, the night, like, my best friend Sydney is literally, like, she is, she has, since we were in high school, she has referred to herself as the Gail to my Oprah. And I was like, no, you, in your own story, you should be Oprah. She goes, no, I want to be Gail. Like, I am (laughs) Gail, you are my Oprah. (laughs) And I was like, okay, like, for sure. And so, And her parents were, like, they were really, like, who raised me and who, like, were, like, the most, like, involved, like, adults in my life and role models. And they very much were so supportive of it, too. So I think that was, that was, like, a good part of it. So, yeah, it was just a weird thing to, like, kind of succeed in, like, my, like, I was always the most successful, whether it was, like, YouTube or doing whatever I was doing when I was, like, the most happy in my real life. I mean, the most unhappy in my real life. So it was, like, this weird Thing. So I don't even necessarily have like great memories of like when like I was able, I got asked a couple days ago, like, what was it like when you realized that like YouTube could be your job and like, that was like your full income. And I was like, well, I realized it when I was like getting bullied in college and I had to drop out and I like needed to figure out if I could pay rent. And so it wasn't like this, like, oh, I've made it. Like, it's always been, it's always been like this weird combo of choosing like, okay, do I throw myself into all of this stuff on the internet? And if I'm throwing myself into it, usually that means I'm not feeling so great in my personal life. So like, how do I find the balance of like doing both and being happy in both, which is something I'm still trying to learn and do all about. Yeah.
0: that I mean, that makes total sense to me. What, what was sort of the jump? Because you started at 16 and then you go to college, like, did it feel that summer when you began more like a hobby? And then when when did this sort of transition
1: happen? Yeah, so I compare it to it being like my like swim team or my lacrosse when I was in high school. Like it was a hobby. Mm-hmm. Like it was, this is just a thing that I do for fun and even through college, because like I never planned on doing YouTube forever. I was like, I'm moving to LA and I'm gonna be an actor. And if I have to go to college, I'll go to college in Southern California and then drop out and then move to LA. Like I had this, I also had this delusional idea that I was gonna get discovered in a mall and be on Disney Channel. And I was like, that's, eventually once I started like uploading a lot of videos of me swearing online, I was like, yeah, it's not gonna happen. Like it's not gonna be Disney Channel. Like they're gonna like one quick Google search, it's not gonna happen. But so I think like I never really treated it. I don't yeah, I don't think I've ever really treated it like a job because I think I've always wanted it to be a a hobby that I got paid for. Because I think because it is so parallel to like acting in the industry, like it's not the same thing, but it is like at this point in time, it is kind of in the same space. And I had a hard time being like, oh, this is my job. This is like what I'm going to do because I was like, well, I don't want to do this forever. This was something that I started as a hobby that is really fun and I like doing, but I can't, if this is all there is to it, like I, I don't, I want to go teach like theater in like Wisconsin or something like I need, like I want, I have, I need something else to be like fulfilled by it. But I, I think like it wasn't. I think it probably wasn't until I dropped out that I really looked at it like a job because when I was in high school, like I I think the most I ever made was $50 was like my like 50 to a hundred dollars. And then by the time I was in college, it was a steady increase in, okay, I could pay for my apartment in college and I could do that. And I never really looked at it like a job also because I think I was at that time, I was 19 and I didn't have any friends who were working full time. Like everybody was either like a student and had a side job. And I've never been like a money oriented. Like I'm not I don't like looking at money. It like stresses me out. I don't like it. I don't it like I'm It's not I don't like it. And so I think I don't even. I don't think I even realized it was a job or I switched it from being a job to a hobby until I needed it to be a job and it because I needed something to get me out of college like I needed something that I could leave for because I knew I had to support myself I wasn't I didn't have any family who was going to pay for anything like if I was going to drop out and move out. So it was very much it that at that point, for me, it had to be a job because how else do you cope with being 19 and not going to college when every other one of your friends are going to college? And I don't have when you're working at it, like a job where you interact with people all all the time, you're like, oh, I'm still having a social life. So I kind of in my mind had to make it And I think I probably presented it that way to a lot of people that I was like, oh, my YouTube's like doing so well. I'm like, I don't need college anymore. I'm dropping out. I'm like, oh, in reality, you're like so depressed. You wanted college to work like you really wanted to have this cool experience. But I think I I needed to spin it to make it like a good opportunity and like something that was worth it to me to do and like pursuing dreams versus being like admitting defeat because I think I felt dumb admitting defeat in something that I, it was pretty clear I was doing I was successful at this one part of my life and I wasn't the other. And so I was like, well, I feel kind of like an asshole if I'm saying I like, I'm not succeeding, but I'm like, I'm not succeeding like emotionally and like interpersonally, but you've got this career that's going well. And so like, yeah, you kind of feel like an asshole to like say that you're not doing so hot when other people would kill to have an opportunity like that. And it's like, well, there's other stuff going on behind the scenes.
0: Right. And it's so tricky because both, both of those things can fully be true and obviously were true. What, what was the dynamic at school? Where were you going and, and,
1: and why, why wasn't it working? I went to UC Riverside. Have you ever been to Riverside? I have. Yes. Worst place on earth. Absolutely. I, it is, first of all, it's hot. It's too hot all the time. Like as a town, it was not fun. Um, it was also like the meth capital of the world when I like went there and I was like this like sheltered kid who like, I can't even watch TV shows where people do drugs. So I was like anxious and terrified the whole time of like every party I walked into being like, "Uh, uh," like, please tell me that's baking soda. Like, I hate this. This is so stressful. But, um, yeah, I, it was I never wanted to go to college like it was just I was not acad I was not great academically like as a student at all because I always had a, I don't know when like you discover you have ADHD, but I always had ADHD, but I, my parents were very anti diagnosing that. And they were just very, I think a lot of the time too, very ignorant in it. And i what I've learned now as an adult is how different it's diagnosed like as like little girls and little boys, because little boys, like they're bouncing off the walls. They can't focus on anything. And I was bouncing off the walls, but I loved to read. So therefore I couldn't have ADHD because I could read a book and and now I like have talked to like my psychiatrist about it. And she was like, well, no, there's a superpower with ADHD where you can hyper focus on things that you love and you can't stop doing them. I was like, oh, so me doing a puzzle until 4 a.m. That makes sense. <laughs> but like, if you're not interested in something, it's not even like I could choose to not pay attention. It was like, I can't like my brain cannot compute. Like, it's just like the Charlie Brown voice. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. So. I wasn't good at school, so I never had, again, the desire to really go to school because it wasn't fun. Like when you're not doing great in school and like especially when you have to like talk in front of people and all of that stuff, like it just it was like a ball of anxiety and not feeling like so unconfident in it. But I went to UC Riverside and my, like the, my parents were very much like just focus on like making friends and like the social experience. I joined a sorority and <laughs> little did I know it was just it, it ended up being kind of that downfall for me was like the the friendships that I kind of had there. And it, what it really ended up turning to be was like the, the girls that I was like roommates with and friends with knew who I was on YouTube before and didn't tell me. And like, they kind of talked with each other that they were like, oh, we're going to get her to pay like all of this money in rent. So she'll essentially be paying for us all to live here. And like, we'll like, it was just very much, they and I think that was the thing that I found like the weirdest once I got older. Cause even still now, I don't even know why they hated me so much. Like it was girls who were like my best friends freshman year. And then sophomore year, it was like, they fucking hated me. And I was like, what? And even now at 26, I'm like, I don't really know why. Like, I still don't really know what happened. And I think it was, I don't wanna like and I and I, I talk about it in the book and like the chapter about like Ed, like I think I it's I'm like trying to remember what the chapter's called, but something about college and bullying and stuff. It was such like an embarrassing thing to be like I'm getting bullied at 19 years old. I was like, even the word bully, it feels like like little kiddish. And I was like, ugh. And I went to such like a positive high school that was like, oh, like if you came out in high school, you were automatically prom king or queen. Like it was so liberal and granola and everybody loved each other. And it was so like cheesy in that typical like 21 Jump Street style like way. And then the college was so different that I felt... I felt so embarrassed, like it's so, and, I, and I'm and i glad that I like eventually ended up like talking about it while I was going through it because it happened to one of my best friends a couple years later who was younger than me. And then I was getting all this influx of people that it still happens. Like we think that you get bullied as a kid and then it goes away. And I was like, you know who's better at bullying? girls who are like in their night, like nineteen twenty, those girls have perfected bullying. Like they're so good at ripping you apart and making you feel like absolute trash. It was, oh, it was awful. I hated it.
0: <laughs> I mean, honestly, and I, you know, I don't, I don't want to depress anybody, but I'm listening to you talk about it and I'm like, girl, I went through it in college. I went through it in my like mid to late Mm twenties. I've, I've been through cycles of this also. And I think, I think that's something that makes it really hard for us as women to figure out and and understand how this could be happening is that women have never been taught to own their success and to understand that success is kind of a competitive contact sport. And so there is a real strange dynamic where, because we don't own it, we don't understand that it can make us a target. Mm -hmm. And I could not fathom that, that the connection, the direct connection in timeline between when one of my best friends in college turned on me and the fact that I had started booking really steady work, I couldn't see it. And in hindsight, it was like, oh, that's so obvious. It's I actually feel stupid for not being willing to just say, Hey, what's going on with the dynamic here? But I also could never, never at 20 have been comfortable enough to say, Hey, is what's happening in my work life making you jealous? I never would have said a friend could be jealous. And it's taken me until my mid thirties to be able to identify that thing. Like, you know, when two dogs at the dog park, like start sniffing each other and their little hair goes up like (laughs) right on their neck. Like now I can see when the hairs go up like that on a, on a woman who is like maybe in my social circle or whatever. And I'm just like, you either deal with your shit or don't, but I, I don't welcome that kind of energy into my life anymore. I don't welcome competitive energy into my space anymore. I'm just not here for it. I have like too many incredible women in my life and in my work life who are just ride or die supportive all in. And so when I see that that thing, I understand that it's culture. I understand that that's a thing that's been done to so many of us. I don't hold it against those people, but I also don't tolerate those people in my space
1: Mm -hmm. because they're not the only people that exist. And that was so hard for me to recognize because the same way, like I have friends who are like my best friend, Sydney is like, has always been the most supportive person in the world. Like to the extent, like it's like, it's uncanny how supportive that, that she is. And so I had such a hard time rationalizing that I was like, oh, not everybody is a Sydney. Okay. There are other people here. And like, I can't, if i found these good people and because like she lives in San Francisco and all of that, I always wanted to find my like my my L.A. version of her. And finally, I was like, but she's enough. That's all I need. Like, I don't need to recreate these friendships because it sucks to say that those friendships are like it's it's a, like a double edged sword that these friendships are so special. You wish that everybody was that supportive and great, but they're not. And so trying to seek and find that out, I'm like, I already have that. But I literally love what you said about success being a competitive competitive combat sport. Cause it is, it a hundred percent is. And it's so weird because you feel, even as women, we feel guilty, not that we should at all, but there's like this inherent sense of feeling, you're, you're happy when you're successful, or at least for me, it's always been, I'm happy, but I'm also a little like, ah, like, I don't want to, I don't want to show this off. Like, I don't, I, I have to feel like I'm watching everything I'm doing versus like men are like, I'm going to buy like a Maserati and like, make it be so loud when I drive it. So everybody knows and women are like, oh, I don't want anyone to think that I'm like spoiled or showing off. And so it's like, you're, you're so aware of your success, not making other people uncomfortable when like, what Like, that shouldn't like I don't feel uncomfortable with other people's like success unless I'm like dealing with my own stuff in which case it is no animosity or anger towards anybody else it's me being like your life looks so perfect on Instagram and I love that for you and I'm just gonna like mute your story for a couple weeks until I can figure my shit out or what I found I'll reach out to those friends of mine who like seem like they're doing so well. And I'm a little envious of, and I'm like, I should get lunch with them and hang out. And then we hang out and I'm like, oh, their life is not going as well as I thought it was. And I was falling into this trap that I know them personally. And like, it's just not, it's not, it, it's not that it's like black and white of being like, oh, they're this, I'm this. And it's like, no, it's, it's, we're all the same in that sense. Yeah. A hundred percent.
0: How, how did you deal because again, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. Like we can look back at friendships that might've been toxic. You can look back at your college situation and understand it. But at the time, I imagine it was really hard. How, how did you make the decision to get out of that environment, to drop out, to change things, to focus on your videos? Like what was that decision process and, and sort of timeline like for you?
1: Yeah, I oh, gosh, I've said putting myself back there. I think I so the thing that was so the getting bullied in college by my roommates was hard enough. The thing that was the hardest, like after that was that nobody cared. Like we had this big sorority of all of these other girls and everybody knew what was going on and nobody cared. And I had adults that I would like, I like reached out to being like, like tail between my legs being like, I don't know if I did anything wrong. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I had them be like, well, this is what happens when you're successful. Like people people are just like, you're going to have to prepare for this. And some people aren't going to like you and you're like going to have to deal. This is like, you signed up for this. And I was like, what, like how is me being successful, me signing up for like having people who pretended to be my friend for a year and then treated me like shit. And then, Yeah. Having nobody else care that for me was like my I'm out. So like I moved out of the apartment that I was in with those girls who I lived with and I moved into an apartment complex with another girl I went to school with. And that was like good for a while. And then she started like and I I didn't really talk about it. Like I hated talking about it. What really like happened and what went down because it was so obvious and it was one of those things that you're like, well, maybe like they don't know. And I'm like, no, they fucking know. Everybody knows what happened. Like, it's not like a, it wasn't like a sudden shift. Like it was three people who hung out every single day. And then suddenly two of them were like pointing and laughing at the third girl. And she was sitting by herself. I'm like, it doesn't take a, like, and even now, if I saw that happening, I go, yeah, I know what's, if there's two in one, I'm going to assume the two are messing with the one. Like, that's, it's just how it goes. And so I ended up moving into a different apartment and hanging out with these other girls. And it, it just became so clear that like, when I would try and talk about it, they were like, oh, we really don't want to get in the middle. Like we're friends with them. And I was like, oh, wow. Like it's, if I stay here, I have to become okay with the fact that these girls who treated me so terribly are friends with everybody else I know here and everybody else I know here is doesn't want like doesn't want to take sides doesn't want to be a part of it and I was like when you don't take sides in bullying, then you're just saying you should have gotten bullied. Like, because there are no sides in that situation. Like there is a victim and there is a perpetrator. Like if there's nothing that was done, like you're not picking, like my side is just, please be my friend. Like, please hang out with me. I need someone to talk to. And I tried to make it work for like, I must've been, I think I did. So with my sophomore year, that happened like the first quarter. And then by spring quarter, I dropped out and I like, I like submitted my final and I was just done. But my, my grades were absolute trash. Like I couldn't focus on school. Like I was just so miserable. And I threw myself into work because that was, it, it, it kind of felt like I, the reason why I got bullied or like whatever reason was for me felt like, oh, it's because of my job. Like it's because of this, What like the success that I'm having online and what I'm doing. And those people online, they're the ones who are nice to me. Like this is like, they did nothing to me except like give me this opportunity and I got to do all of this stuff. And I would rather throw myself into that community and those people than what I was dealing with at school and so it just it was a very it was rough though like nobody wanted me to drop out obviously even my friends like my friends because they were having such different experiences they were like just transfer to another school and I was like but I hate college like I hate school and like this isn't fun for me and the social aspect was the stuff that's supposed to be fun and like if that's not fun I can't do it but it took a while for even like my closest friends and everybody to be like, okay, this was, I guess this was a good idea because I told everybody that I was just taking a leave of absence and I knew I was never going back, but I was like, if I can prove to everybody else that I don't need it, then they won't make me go back. Right. Was my well, thought. And there
0: And there's something to that. Energy, You know, you said that you were trying to focus on the positive and obviously the social situation and what was happening in college wasn't working, but what was happening online was. But I think about that and I'm like, you know, every person who kills it in an industry or who has succeeded in a new endeavor says like, you got to fake it till you make it. And so I hear you figuring out how you were just going to fake it till you made it and, and make this thing work for you. So you leave school, you you go all in, and now we're you know at, at your empire if you want to call it that, or your business, like whatever feels right. But I'm like, call it an empire, own it. <laughs> I love you it. Know, we're <laughs> like, we're you know, like we're talking about owning success, like own it. And it's you know, two million subscribers and a podcast and a blog and now a book, and it's like, how how, how do you think that happened? Like was was it about content? Was it about regularity? Was it about getting really honest with your viewers? Like, how did how did you begin to build it when you went all in on it?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it's always been the honesty. I've never been good at, I'm like stubborn to a fault. Like if I will... I'm like, a, I'm not good at picking my battles. Like I, every battle is my battle and I have to oh win my it. God, like, I like, I can't let anything go. Like I can't at all. Like I just have this, like, I, I'm, I'm, I will admit I am like a keyboard social justice warrior. Like there are things where I'm like, no, I will get in a fight with every single person who tweets at me and like says something bad. I'm like, no, I like, I, I can't not. So I think I've never been the whole thing with YouTube, which has been difficult for a lot of people and has been difficult for me, but I haven't part, I haven't like joined in on it is the fact that there are trends, like there are like eras of what is cool. And I can fully admit that I rocked it in the era of like, 2015, 2016, like I was in that cool era. And then it changed to these kinds of videos that were super saturated and highly edited. And they were very like bubblegum aspirational stuff. And that was never my niche. My niche was never being an aspirational person. I was always someone that people were like, Oh, I see you. You're kind of like a mess like I am. And this feels comfortable. And so when it got to this aspirational content, I I I never I never really went in on that because it felt so like fake and inauthentic to me. So I kept doing what I was doing. And after a while that content was gone and then it moved on to, I don't even know what they would call like the next era, but it was always this like ebb and flow of things. And I've seen like as a consumer of watching, people love when the people that they follow are authentic in themselves but the issue is you can't hit in every single market and every single time that like the what they're into is changing because then you're changing and therefore you're not authentic anymore and so it's like it becomes really hard to have like a long sustaining career because if you start to shift your MO to fit in with what's popular then you're no longer what they who who they thought you were and they feel and like your audience can feel betrayed. So I think the thing that's worked for me, and it's definitely like my success is nowhere, like if whether it's like videos or whatever it is, like it's my success to me and like has changed, like my podcast has like, that's a new endeavor and all of this sort of stuff. But I think for me, like it was just being honest. And I have always been I would say I'm like a seemingly open book, but I'm so, I'm like very much an open book about a selective thing. So I'm like, Oh, but if you knew what was going on in here, like, you'd be like, Oh, you're not opening up at all. Like, I'm so, I'm not like a big, I I like, we'll talk with my friends about certain stuff, but not everything. And so I've, and I think that's also probably a syndrome of only childism because you're like, I'm used to being the only kid. And like, who's going to talk to, I don't have another like, peer to relate to. Yeah. I mean, I
0: have that for sure. I, I process a lot on my own. And I also am such a verbal processor because I can't just think about it. So if I can have a long night with some best friends to talk about things, I'll do, I'll do sort of aha moments and leaps and bounds, but it also takes me a while sometimes to talk about things. Like I, I remember sharing, you know, with one of my best friends when I finally, like I quit this job a couple of years ago. And when I finally shared with my best guy friend why I quit my job a year after I did, he like sat on the couch with me and he was sobbing. And he was like, I can't believe I didn't know this. Like, I'm not I'm not gonna say like, why didn't you call me? Like, obviously this is what you were dealing with, but like, why didn't you call me? And I was like, I just, I, as an, as an only, and as like that mix of an introvert and extrovert, I really went inside and I wasn't, I didn't know how to talk about this for a while, but now I'm ready. And like, now I'll talk, let's talk about it all the time, you know, but it, I, I, so I totally get that. I feel such a kinship with you.
1: That's exactly how I am. Like exactly. Like I, I have to, like, I always call it like mentally preparing or mentally processing. Like I have to do all of the filing in my mind first and on my own before I can let anybody else into like, cause it's clutter. Like it's all just clutter and mess. And sometimes I don't want to immediately deal with the mess. Sometimes I want to take months ignoring the mess and not processing it and not dealing with it. And then finally I'll do that, but then I can let other people in, but I'm not, I'm the exact same way. Like I have to get it sorted. Yeah.
0: Well, and I also think there's a real reality. Look, the way our brains are wired, sometimes they don't allow us to deal with things, the brain compartmentalizes lets you focus somewhere else it's all it's all coping mechanisms on a sliding scale it makes me so curious though cuz to your point there's so many people who feel like you're so open like you'll you'll really talk about something in such a deep way because you do how do you kind of toggle between what you talk about with your followers and what you don't like do you worry about oversharing do you feel like you need to be on all the time what what is your methodology for how you show up in that space?
1: So I am just now learning how to do that and figure that out because it, it it it's kind of like when you've got a friend who should be in therapy and treats their friendships like therapy and it gets to a point where you're like I can't I can't help you in the way that you need and I think for a long time I I was either in one of two mindsets, either I would ignore and not process and not deal with it. And like you said, like coping mechanism, I would throw myself into videos and really put myself on so I didn't have to deal with what I was going through. Mm -hmm. And then there were times that I was dealing with so much and I was so overwhelmed that I was like, I physically can't like I physically can't put it on. And if I do, I know I'm going to do a bad job at it. And if I read all these comments of people saying like, what's she not talking about? Like, is anyone noticing her face at like this timestamp or any, like all of that stuff that I felt like uh, the only time, the times that I've been so honest, where I felt like, it's like when you want to tell someone you love them for the first time and you're ter- all you're thinking about is thinking like, don't say it, don't say it. Like it's the only word in your head. And that's how I felt when it was like really shitty stuff that I was like, I don't know how to turn on a camera and say anything else because my brain, as opposed to having all of these tabs open, it's just one thing that I'm so overwhelmed by. And I feel like I have to talk about it. And I think for a while, I wouldn't say that I unloaded online. Like, I think I really, I was careful about what I said and really specific about what I said because I was always like, I was always kind of, I've always been the share where I like step, I'm like two t- two steps in, see how it's being received before I dive in because I'm like, I can't, I can't be exposed and vulnerable and then not have someone to like be there to catch me. Like, I don't feel comfortable doing that. So I think that I would always kind of toe that line of like sharing to an extent that I felt like, I, I could let that out and I didn't, I wouldn't feel so exposed. And that's what my, my therapist says that she's like, you hate feeling exposed. Like that is like, it's, I can't, if I can't tie it up and like, I just can't walk around like that. Cause I'm, I'm an empath and I will, I will die. I will like shatter. I will be like Thanos's snap and I will like disintegrate into the world. Like I will just combust in feelings and I hate it. And so that has been, it's, it really took me until I mean, a lot of therapy to figure all of it out. But really, what it took for me was to find that the internet is a great place, but the internet is not my friend. Those aren't people like those are lots of little people who they know me, but I don't know them. And it's like, it's like being in love with like a celebrity who you've never met before that I don't get anything. I I can get some messages out of it, but I don't know enough about you. Like, I don't know enough about all of these specific people to form this whole relationship. Like it's just, and no matter how much I share, I'm never going to feel that sense of connection when I'm just messaging some like I'm responding to a comment like if I meet you in person and we get to know each other but it's the difference of friendships versus like pen pals or something that's so detached Yes. Yes. and it wasn't until I had these good friends in real life and like a good like relationship and all of that stuff that I finally could like see what it was how to how to have that divide and how to be like okay, what do I want to share and what can I talk about with my therapist and talk about with my boyfriend and all of that stuff. And now when I go online, it's not me being afraid of kind of towing the line of like not saying too much and being too vulnerable because I've already processed it with people. And I've already, I am now coming at it from, I don't want, not, not as like a, Oh, I know what I'm doing kind of way, but a little bit, it's a little bit more clear and it's a little bit more concise and cohesive. And I can talk about it without either being so emotionally broken that I'm going to burst into tears or not wanting to talk about it at all and completely like faking it. And I found that, that the more honest that I am with people online, the net, like I don't, I hate the term like relatable because it seems so forced. Like it feels like you're trying, when you're like someone's relatable, you're like, oh, they're trying to be relatable. But I think like I did a video, I, I think it was like last week or the week before. And I like left in a clip of me taking my face mask off and like being so upset with myself for picking my skin. And I like pick my skin all the time. Like I can't stop. And I just left it in. And I was like, I, maybe this is oversharing or whatever, but I didn't edit it. I didn't use it as the thumbnail, didn't make it like, this big, like, clickbait sort of thing. And I got so many messages of people who were like, Thank you so much for, like, being someone who's vlogging during quarantine and showing that you're, like, having a mental breakdown because you picked the shit out of your skin and you don't know why. And you're verbally processing it and talking about it with us, but you're not, you're not, like, pretending it didn't happen and you're still. But then I, I ended the clip saying I think I don't feel great looking at myself in like this viewfinder right now. I'm not going to film for the rest of the day. And people are like, that's such like an amazing growth from our us viewers to see you recognize that, talk about it, and then go. This is what I need, and I'm going to step away from this. And I they're like, you gave us enough. Like it's not too much. We don't feel like you're 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 pushing yourself to do this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, this feels it feels like the good. I'm learning how to share a good amount with people that it feels like I'm also not I don't like get worried about filming anymore of like really trying to like oh I have to like look nice and do like get it all like pep up and all of that stuff I was like oh I can just like turn on a camera and just be what I'm like right now which is so much easier and way less pressure
0: yeah it's way there's so much more freedom in it and I I love that the way that you talk about the experience of like these relationships with followers because I I feel a lot of similar feelings. There's a struggle I feel like sometimes to properly qualify what that is because I truly do appreciate what happens online. My community is so amazing and I'm obsessed with them. And and yet and it only happens to me sometimes when there's an interaction in person that feels weird. Because when we're, when we're messaging or we're having a conversation or we're having a dialogue or we're all activating around like a cause or people are helping to rally for some social justice issue with me, it feels like this incredibly delicious like energy. And every once in a while, I'll have an interaction in person that really throws me and makes me feel so uncomfortable. And I know that that's not someone's goal and I know that that's not done on purpose. I mean, aside from like the occasional creepy guy who deserves a punch in the face. But what I realize is that in person, the energy, the difference in relationship is palpable because the per- sometimes I run into a person and to them, I'm the most familiar person in the world. But to me, this person is a stranger and if we have a conversation online, if they leave a comment and I respond to them, we're having an equal conversation. But in person, there is this, like, expectation. There's very often, like, a desire for, like, intimate touch. Like, st- uh, like strangers really want to hug me and they want to hug me in a way that, like, my friends hug me where we hug and then they, like, squeeze. And And I know that that is not someone trying to make me uncomfortable, but I'm looking at your face and I see that that it makes you uncomfortable. It makes me so uncomfortable because it feels like an intimacy that has not been earned because I don't have that intimacy with this person. I don't know this person. And, And so in a way, I feel like I have to, it's almost like I have to bifurcate and I have to honor the experience I'm having, which is that I'm physically uncomfortable but I also want to honor the emotional experience and like connection and, you know, whether it's compliment observation, whatever I'm on the receiving end of, that's also so nice. And they're two completely different and almost opposing things. And they're happening at the same time. And I, again, I don't, I don't, propose that I have some sort of solution. I just think it can be important to acknowledge like the reality of this stuff, especially as women trying to figure out how to feel respected in our bodies in the world. And, and so I wonder, I guess, just meeting you where you are and saying like, same, you're not alone there. I I wonder how do you feel about your relationships Perhaps even just in the digital space, because obviously it's more complicated in the physical. But like in the in the digital space, what is your relationship like with your followers? Do do you find that because of the way you share and the things that you offer, do they do that back? Like, do they give you advice? What does your community feel like? Does it yeah? Does it feel like a really trusted place for you?
1: So I think I I mean I re- literally relate to everything that you're saying, and I think the thing that I because I I feel all of that, and then I feel guilty for feeling that kind of thing. Oh my god, the guilt is so intense, and it feels and it feels like it feels like a dirty emotion that I shouldn't be feeling because we're having the person who I'm meeting is having such a different experience than I am, and I am I'm not I, I feel the whole same thing, and I think my biggest pressure I've always felt is when people will say things like your videos or whatever you're doing. Like when I listen to your podcast, when I do anything that consume any of your content, like that's like the only, that's like my escape from my life when I want to be happy. And I'm like, that's my life. Like that's my life. And my life is an escape for you to be happy. What's my escape? Like what's, how do I find that? Because I love if that can be I love when people say that if that's like how you feel about it, but I don't, more than anything, I, I would rather people consume my content. And I think it's, it's really changed the more honest that I've been and the more open that I've been that now people will say, I I watch your content. And I just, the whole time I'm watching, I'm going, Oh my God, same. Oh my God, same. Like I could, I see you in that. And that (laughs) feels so much better, so much less pressure because it, and I think if they had said that like five years ago when I was really faking it till I made it, I would have been like, Oh God, well, I don't relate to her. So like, I'm glad you do, but like, that doesn't feel like me. So (laughs) That's hard. But I I think the same way that like online, I love the relationship I have. I think everybody is so nice and so sweet. And I've gotten to this point where I feel like every DM I get when people want to give me advice, they start with saying, feel free to tell me to fuck off. Like, and they start it with like, a hey, we know your personality. And like, we know you're not asking for this advice and it's unsolicited. So I think the more that they've gotten to know me, I think the more. I don't want to say respectful, but also the older that they've got, like the the. My, I'm really lucky that my audience has grown up with me, and I'm not making videos for twelve year olds. So that age where it then becomes, oh, we're all in our twenties. Like it feels a little bit less. I never want to be someone's like idol or hero or something because that's like pressure and shoes that I can't fill. I'd rather be someone that you look at and go, oh my god, we could be friends. Like I like that relationship a lot more. But it's, it's, it's a hard line to like figure out because I wish I could have like every interaction with like my audience. I wish I could have them all online. And then if I have it in person, I wish I had like a cheat sheet with everyone's face and their username and their little icon and every interaction we've had before. So I don't, so I feel like I'm on an even playing field with them. So I don't feel like, yeah. I'm coming in there as the asshole who's like, oh, I don't remember you. But it's like, but if I if I was given five minutes, like all of the conversations we've had, like I totally would. But now I just feel like I I'm under a microscope, and I don't want to disappoint. And then I feel like then I just become like a caricature of myself. And I'm like, ooh, woohoo, yay! And you're like, I just don't (laughs) want you to be disappointed by who I am in person. And that's always been my biggest thing. Is that, and I think it happens so much. Is that everybody talks about, oh, well, what are they like in real life? Like, oh, in real life, what are they like? And you never want to be that person who sucks in real life. And so then you try and turn yourself on to be the version that people see and the version that people see are like okay they see you like free they see you like on a tv show on a red carpet like all of the best of the best stuff and then you see them at like barnes and noble and you're like well now i gotta turn into like me at the golden globes but here like what they know you as and that i think is really it's hard but i think it'll get easier hopefully as the internet becomes more synonymous with everyone's day-to-day life
0: i also think that there you have to give yourself permission to not feel like you have to live up to someone else's expectation of you Mm -hmm. because that's not a real thing. And that's true whether you're like on TV or on YouTube or you work in an office building, like other people's expectations of us as humans are never who we are. Mm -hmm. And, and I know that I've had to give myself a little bit of grace and permission to just be where I am And if I'm having a really bad day, if like, if I've just gotten horrible news and I meet and someone runs up to me five minutes later and I'm like trying not to just start bawling in public, I'm like, I'm so sorry. Today's a bad day. And I've had to give myself permission to be human enough to say like, I can't, I can't even try to meet your expectation right now. And, and, you know, maybe next week I'll run into somebody and I'll be more than they expected, but you, you know you have you have to allow yourself to be human. And I think that's part of what's interesting about what's happening right now is, in a way, it almost seems to me like because of this whole pandemic and all of these stay at home orders, people are being more honest about their mental health and and we're starting to look at each other in in more real and holistic ways. People are asking how you are and they actually mean it. People are like, how are you? Like, are you okay? Are you sleeping? How's your stress? You know, it feels it feels deeper and kinder. And I hope that that's something that we can apply to each other. Again, regardless of industry or like quote unquote fame or whatever. That's like, I'm not talking about just for you and me. I'm just talking for people out in the world. I hope that those measures of kindness are things that we can hold on to when we start interacting in person again
1: yeah no totally because you're again you're reading micro expressions now you have to like you're only seeing people in these little boxes and stuff like that so you feel like you have to dig deeper because like you're not in person with them and like you can't just it it feels weirdly so as distant as everything feels it feels also weirdly more intimate and I think like it makes us it forces us to Like to face that we're caring a lot more about people, which I hope, I I definitely hope is, is, uh, I think, and I think it's also teaching everybody like to give themselves more grace and all of that. And it, because there's no other option now. And I think that's, what's like, oh, well, I have to, like, there's nothing I can really do about it. Like there's some major things out of all of our control and, we don't, it's, you don't, yeah, you don't know how you're going to react to any of this stuff. And so it just becomes, well, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing, and that has to be the right thing because I've never done it before. And so this is, there's only one, there's only one way to figure it out.
0: Hmm. What's it like to be promoting a book right now?
1: Is that a crazy thing in a pandemic? (laughs) It is, but I will also say it is kind of my dream scenario because I, I was, so I am, So honest in the book that, like, I was, I didn't even want to read the audiobook. I was like, I'm going to cry the whole time in some random studio in Burbank with some dude I've never met before who's like going to be operating this. And like, I hate this. Like, I don't want to do it. And because of the pandemic, it ended up being one of my best friends, who's my podcast producer. She directed it from my apartment. And like, it was before stay at home orders, but it was like when we were isolating. And so she did it with me and like was there the whole time. And it made me feel so much more comfortable, but also, weirdly, the whole time I was like, I don't know who I would rather now, because now I'm like sharing with a lot of my friends that I'm like, this is, is this, it's like performing for someone, you know, versus one person you don't. And you're like, which is better? Like, I don't know. And so (laughs) it ended up being really great and really nice because I just felt like I felt a lot safe. You feel safe, like I'm safer at home, but I just, I felt more comfortable here. And I also wrote the book here. Like it didn't, it it's always felt like this very weirdly intimate thing that has like lived on my laptop. Like it's never felt like a book or like a real thing that anybody else is going to see. Like it's just always felt so personal and the fact that I got to record the audiobook at home felt fitting for something so personal and then I like the, the greatest gift of all of this is that I don't have to do reads at a bookstore. I was like, first of all, I suck at reading out loud, but I was like, everyone wants the like, oh, read a chapter about depression. I'm like, I'm sorry, you want me to read a chapter about depression in front of a, like a hundred people I've never met before and you don't want me to cry? Like, I like, there's no way that I can do that. So I think it's been. It's been weirdly nice that like, I think also just the timing of like the book coming out, like it got pushed back a lot of times. One time it got pushed back and you'll love this. I had female editors and publishers at the old place I was at tell me that the title You're Not Special was not something a woman could do because it wasn't nice and only men could get away with it. And I went to like tell them off. And immediately my manager disconnected me from the call. And she goes, yes, we're not going to work with them anymore. But like, I just need you to like walk away and take a deep breath. And I was like, okay, good. Yeah. I don't need to cuss out all of these people on a phone call. Like I am so angry. Like I will just lose my mind. So I think like the fact that it ended up getting delayed and like, there's a whole chapter of like, why I don't have like a relationship with my mom anymore. And it came out like a week before mother's day. And the fact Mm -hmm. that I got like so many messages of people who are like I didn't know how much I would need this at this time but like obviously any content when we're stuck at home is great but I think the fact that like the book lends itself to be like more of an intimate thing than something that I would feel kind of like I'd feel so silly like getting on like a talk show like wearing a fancy dress and like talking about like these really like personal, intimate things about my life. Like it just feels, it doesn't, it never really sat right with me. So I think that's like the one plus side of all of this. And I also feel a lot less icky promoting something that is, that it doesn't feel frivolous. Like I think it feels so, at least for me, Like and from the response I've gotten, it feels so like human and feels so like, relatable in a sense that it's like there's a lot of mental health talk there's a lot of like bullying talk. all of these things that it doesn't feel like I'm promoting like my new bikini line when like we're all stuck inside which feels a lot better for my soul in a way
0: well for the record I love that the title of the book is you are not special
1: thank you I think think it's it's funny
0: And it's a good
1: thing. And I think people don't. and, And I think I like the idea of people being put off by it at first and being like, what? I'm offended. And I was like, yeah, it makes you pick it up and then see why. And then you realize, like, you're not special. It's a good thing. Like, it's a it's a great thing to not be special in this instance. Like, it's it's, it's what you want to be. Like, you don't want, you don't want all of your struggles and all the things you've gone through. You don't want someone to go, wow, I've never been through that. I feel like you're the only person in the world who's ever, that's ever happened to. And you're like, well, that makes me feel awful. Like I'm the only one, like, it's not a good feeling
0: It's actually really nice to realize that whatever it is you carry, there's a lot of other people out there carrying the same things. And, and we can relate on that level if we're willing to get real. Exactly. The process of writing a book and getting as introspective as you did and sharing as much as you did, and, and I'm sure everyone listening is like ready to read it, I wonder what, because I imagine there's so much processing work that goes into that, and you you must sort of feel like a new version of yourself on the other side of completing it. So if you could leave my listeners with a lesson or a piece of advice that you feel like you you earned from that process, what would it be?
1: Oh, I think it's that we're never done. And like, we're never, we never have it figured out. And I learned that through, I've been writing the book for like five years. And I'm going back to the same stories of toxic friendship when I was in high school. And it's not like when I was editing it, I was like, like two years ago, or I'm halfway through and I'm like, Oh, I need to add a new story. It was no, I'm still learning from that thing that happened when I was 16. And I think I spent so long wanting to be like done with the things that I hated and like done with the traumas and done with the stuff that like weighs on you and doesn't feel good. And like those bad experiences, you just want to be done. And I thought if I wasn't done, then I needed to keep putting the work in to eventually be done. And I was like, okay, but if I get rid of all of that stuff, then like, what am I like, I'm not the things that have happened to me. But like, that's molded who I am as a person, these experiences. And if I got rid of all of them, like what's left, because I am a byproduct of the choices I've made, and like the relationships that I've had, and like the life experiences that I've had. And if I'm trying to get rid of them, that's I am who I am because of them. And also in spite of them. like there are things that have shaped me like that. And it was such a it's a lesson I'm still learning that that's all okay to keep learning from it and to keep everything open and that I'm not going to have it all figured out. And that's really, really, really going to be fine. And I think also that I don't, My the other I'd say the other one, which is just like an add-on, is is to just trust yourself, which I think is such a like an ongoing lesson that we're learning. And you think it's so easy, like yeah, I trust myself, but it's bigger than just like not like not only just not questioning everything you say and do, but also going, well, did I interpret that the right way? Or it's like, but there's no right way to interpret it. How it made me feel was how I felt. And one of the lines that people have resonated with, I mean, there's a couple of like vulgar funny lines that they've resonated with, but like one that was like, your feelings are valid because you feel them. Like if you feel something that's like, that's end, that's it. That's all that matters. It exists. It's out there because it makes you feel a certain way. And I think all of those things, like, I think even that, and I wrote that and I was in that one of the earliest chapters, but I don't think that I gave myself the opportunity to believe that about myself until I was done writing it, that I was like, everything that i've felt all my feelings are going to change over time they're going to change i'm going to feel different things i'm going to feel certain things and it's and it's fine and it's not you can close those doors of whatever's happened in your life or experiences but you're not going to ever be able to like padlock them up and walk away and have them never exist ever again they're going to come up and it's about learning how to like process it and deal with it and take the lessons that you've learned And channel them for good in your life and figuring all of that stuff out. And I think I thought for a long time being like feeling those things like made you weak. And if you couldn't get over something, you're weak. And it's like, okay, but then there's this really good place of this is something that doesn't actively bring me down every single day. But if I think about it, it hurts. And it wasn't a great experience but like, and then there's the getting over it thing. And that in between thing, I was like, that's where everyone's at, but no one's telling us that. And that was such like a powerful thing for me to think that like, oh, I'm not broken. And there's not all, I'm not like missing this piece that I'm supposed to be doing to be over all of this stuff. Like I need to like, it's coping and like learning how to process versus just trying to shut everything away and be done. And that's such a. a a trait that I'm used to of trying to like rush through things and have it be done and be finished that like it's it's okay also to be unfinished as a person and that's a good thing because like I don't always like who I am at all times of the day forever and that's it's it's great that I then have the opportunity and the power to grow and change and it's a good thing which was hard for me to recognize yeah I think
0: it's a phenomenal thing to give yourself permission to always get better and 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 grace for the moments when you feel like you're backsliding. Yeah. And it happens to everybody. Yeah. Well, it feels like the most appropriate segue into my very favorite question to ask everyone, which is, as you know, the title of the podcast is work in progress and what as you sit from this vantage point today and and look out and maybe look in, what feels like a work in progress in your life right now
1: oh, I think probably the biggest thing is like my own relationship with myself which mm. as an only child and an empath I was I'm I'm so much more about everybody else and have always been about making everybody else feel comfortable and like then fitting myself in wherever I fit in and I've always, I've loved all of the make the all the phrases and, and sayings about like make, women making room for themselves and giving themselves permission to take up room, and I think that's a work in progress for me because I think. I mean, it's unlearning, like we talked about at the beginning, you know, the pink tax, all of the stuff about we what we've been taught for women to feel like I didn't know what hip dips were until I like saw on Instagram and I was like, I'm supposed to dislike those? Like, what? What do you what even are they? And like that kind of stuff that I I, it's a work in progress with, yeah, focusing on my relationship with myself in being OK with being like an incomplete human being and that I'm going to constantly grow and evolve and change and be okay with all of that. And then finding a way to not be happy all the time. That used to be my goal. I was like, I just want to be happy all the time. And I was like, well, no, I want to be able to appreciate those moments when I'm really happy and recognize them. And I want to get better at finding, at, at focusing on that kind of stuff and not, and not the stuff that takes you down and brings you down. I would say all of that. And yeah, as I get, I think everyone says, as you get older, you start to care a little bit less about what everybody thinks. And I've always struggled the most with caring about what I think about myself. And so I was like, yeah, I'm caring less about what other people think, but I'm caring too much still about what I think about Mm. like frivolous things. So for me, it's an, it's an active work in progress that I, I have to seek out content and seek out art, like, like just anything that makes me think about my relationship with myself in a better and more positive way, because it's not something that comes naturally. And it's also if we just like, pay attention to the media, it's the exact opposite effect. Like, it's, it's like, it's a real work work, like I have to go out of my way to work on it. But yeah, it's it's a work in progress. <laughs> I
0: love that. Oh my gosh, Megan, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to have had this conversation today and, and I'm glad that we now are like connected. The same person. <laughs> yeah, we're the same. I love it. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.